Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Damon Can, professor of political science at Utah State University and mayor of North Logan. Amy Donaldson, executive producer of podcasts at KSL and Heidi Hatch, anchor and reporter with KUTV. So glad to be with you all this evening. Never a slow week in politics. And uh, we, we have a lot to get to tonight. I wanna start with, uh, with you, Heidi, on what's happening in the governor's office. Uh, after the end of the legislative session, the governor has 20 days to sign or veto, or I guess technically let them go into effect with, without a signature. And I think it's interesting, as we started the session, there was a little thread out there of sorts. That he, the governor said, I may veto some of your bills. Are we seeing that? Are there any bills on the table he may just decide to veto. Well, I think a lot of people are watching this closely. I think there was 500 bills in all. There's been 300 some odd signs. So a lot of people are watching closely. And the one that people keep asking about is whether or not he's going to sign the mask mandate. And he said, yes, I am, even though he has. And I think he's kind of stringing everyone along with that until the last second. There is some question about the funding for the inland port, possibly if that would happen. I think there's a couple others that people are like, is he, is he not going to sign? But I guess that's the big surprise. I felt like there was definitely going to be vetoes, though, when he made his address because he said, I'm going to veto and it's not going to be personal. So is it not going to be personal? Is he going to use that political capital? I don't know yet. It's going to be yeah. interesting. I guess that's the question, Amy, because I want to get yeah. to a couple yeah. of those potential ones. But did he use this pol political capital that we didn't see? And that's why there are no vetoes on the table. Talk about what's ha what happened there. Yeah, that was that was my feeling. I think everyone saw that uh, that statement a little differently. You kind of referred to it as sort of a threat. But I think it was mostly him saying, like, I'm a new governor. Uh, don't treat me just because I served in the old administration. Don't treat me like, you know, things are just the same. Um, I plan to step up my scrutiny of policies that come through here. And so I took it as um, he he was going to do more front end negotiating. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's sort of like in in, in the legal profession. If a if a trial lawyer is willing to take a case to trial, they have a lot more clout when it comes to negotiating a plea agreement. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be vetoing more bills. I think the fact that he is willing to do that and to take those hits politically um, make people more willing to come in and negotiate. And I think you saw some front end negotiation on some bills. We definitely did. Hey, Damon, you, when you look historically through the political scientist lens, uh, you have the, the elected official lens also. But talk about uh, the impact of this veto in the governor's office and that relationship with the legislature, because you go back to governors like Governor Herbert, who it wasn't often, but sometimes did veto a few pieces of legislation. And sometimes it was bills he really was opposed. But also there was a signal that there is a clear separation here and the governor has uh, a unique set of powers. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, the governor wants to be able to work effectively with the legislature. Uh, and I think uh, Governor Cox kind of, uh, you know, signaled that he might be a little more assertive. And I think used that statement early on in the legislative session that he might use the veto more than his predecessors to encourage the legislature to sit down with him and negotiate and engage the governor in the legislative process in the way that he hadn't before. Uh, and that's been very effective. And the governor has had a lot of high profile sit downs on a variety of different issues. Uh, the uh, uh, transgender uh, people in girls sports. Uh, we had um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the count my vote compromise and a number of things that came up. And I think because of what he had said, 
that people were willing to sit down and have negotiations with him and listen to the governor as a player in the legislative process. It may have helped also that he's a former colleague there, knows how to work that system in the legislature. Can we get to a couple, maybe two of these bills that Heidi mentioned, Amy, because uh, they may have an impact. So there's the mask, but I want to talk, start with the inland port because there's a group that actually came forward just this week with a bunch of signatures saying, this is the one that they want them, they want the governor to veto. What, what is in that particular bill that's causing some concern? Um, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with that bill. Um, I know the concerns have, they just, they have focused on the funding and they focused on the pollution and the, and the, the impact on those communities, which are already disadvantaged communities. And so I, I think they're the same concerns coming up in a different, maybe a more focused way. Um, but I, I don't see him, uh, I don't see that being vetoed. So these expanded powers are yeah. interesting for this inland port, as Amy just mentioned. Uh, and on the, the, the end game bill that you were referring to, Heidi, so this is <laughs> April 10th, the masks go away, some of the restrictions start to get, starting to get lifted. Uh, it's, your, it's your sense, it sounds like governor's going to sign that bill and is all in on this, at least his policy. At least from what he said yesterday, it sounds like he's going to sign it. And I don't know that he's signing it because he wants to sign it, but he also knows if he doesn't sign it, they could come quickly and then override him. And then by April 10th, it would still happen anyways. I also think that the mask mandate's not going away on April 10th. I think that it's a message bill that's getting sent out. But if you look at Texas, uh, we have Target stores, uh, Kroger stores saying you still have to wear them. Here in Utah, Harmons has already said, and I can guarantee you April 9th, Salt Lake City and Salt Lake County are going to make sure that mask mandate stays in place, possibly other governments. So I think there will be an easing in some places, but just as quickly the mask mandates will be put in by local governments and our kids are going to be wearing them till the recess bell rings on the very last day so okay. it's still there yeah it's definitely still going to be there let's talk about what's happening with the republican party because a lot of these things have tentacles directly into uh, the policy and uh, what may be a divided party a little bit because uh, damon uh, this week it's been interesting Derek brown the current chair of the utah republican party dis uh, publicly said he is not going to run for a second term what does that mean and why yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Derek Brown has been incredible as a figure who can unite the Republican Party. Uh, he has a lot of allies in different segments and uh, a lot of support, both from uh, people who are more hardcore right wing as well as people who are more centrist. And just his personality and nature has made him incredibly successful in these two years uh, that he's been chair of the Republican Party. I think it's gonna be tough for the Republicans to find someone who uh, brings all of those same skills, connections, and assets to that position. And there's a real potential here for backsliding right back into the conflict uh, and, and disunity that we saw in the Utah Republican Party just a couple short years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's because the Republican Party is at a crossroads uh, nationally and locally. And that is, you know, who, what is, what is our goal? What, what, you know, who are we trying to include? Who, who, you know, there's this, I, you know, with the re-upping of SB 54, and should we get rid of signatures, or do we go through conventions? Um, or, uh, you know, I, I think there's a real um, identity crisis and a power struggle, and um, you have people who want the party to be um, smaller and more focused, and and you have people who want to make a bigger 
uh, as they say, a bigger tent and invite people in. And I know a lot of people, especially immigrants, who would be Republican, who that, that is their philosophical, you know, uh, leaning, but, but right now don't feel particularly welcome. And I think what would be interesting is if we, if they pick a state chair who is welcoming to diversity and says, hey, we want to get bigger and more broad and not be narrower in our focus, um, you'll see it, it, I think, a continuation or an expansion of what Derek brought to the table. Um, but there's a real possibility and some real power players, I think. Um, but it's really about what's the identity of the party going to be going forward and who, who drives that. Mm -hmm. to, go ahead, Heidi. I was going to say the identity crisis, I think, is interesting because sometimes you only see it in one portion of the party, where a lot of times we've been seen on the left, the kind of Bernie and Biden, the big divide there. But Republicans, if you look at our senators, I think there's a big divide between where Lee and Romney vote and how people feel their support is at this point. And then if you look at the gubernatorial race, we had very qualified candidates, but there was a big range going from Greg Hughes on the other end um, to uh, John Huntsman. And when you look at that, there really is a struggle within the party of which direction they go. Can we really be the big tent and put our arms around all of them? Or do we pick and choose if you can use the signature or how you get on the ballot? And I think whoever has to take the lead on that, it's not an easy job because I don't think anyone really knows who they want to be right now. Mm -hmm. D Damon, to these really great points, I'm curious about how, how it goes forward with this next person because what we saw, you gave a, a really good example right there, but even a couple of weeks ago, uh, Derek Brown had to send out a statement saying, we know Mitt Romney voted one way, we know uh, Mike Lee voted a com the completely opposite way, but our party is big enough for both of these. I mean, yeah. did, did he find the right line there? And is you know, this gonna be a hard one to keep going? Yeah, no, I think he struck exactly the right balance. Uh, the Republican Party for several years up until this last election was hemorrhaging voters. Uh, the conflict within the Utah Republican Party was driving people out. And I think uh, uh, that Mr. Brown recognized the importance of trying to keep as many people on the Republican ship as possible, because when people are jumping off the party ship, it's not good for the party's long-term well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, even with a supermajority, you have issues. It's it a big out. tent, but did you want to be in the sleepover well, at that big tent <laughs> with all those people fighting? I don't know. But I think locally you do have a group of conservatives who kind of want to form their own party. You had the mm -hmm. United Utah Party, and then you have uh, Evan McMullen leading a group saying, "Let's let's let's do a you know sort of a never Trumper version of of the Republican Party." And and I just keep searching for like where's that traditional conservative Republican Party, and does it still exist in enough uh, quantity? I guess mm -hmm. that um, that it's viable, and that's that. I, I think it will be interesting to see what happens in the next decade with the, with both parties. Yeah. Before I leave this, Damon, I just I'm just curious about one thing. We see the uh, version of that Senate Bill 54 to undo that, which is the signature gathering bill. Every session with Derek has been one's been trying to help help take care of that particular bill. Uh, what's going to happen in the future? Can you speculate about that? Is going to be stronger? The advocates who are left. Next year, are we going to keep seeing that bill trying to get back to the more traditional way that the only way to get on the ballot is through a caucus convention system? Yeah, I think we will continue to see that push for a few more years. At some point, it's going to go away, uh, and it'll happen in one of two ways. First of all, there are more and more people that get elected in Utah, both in the state legislature and for our federal office, our, our, our governor's office, uh, that will credit signature gathering with their ability to compete and win in elections, uh, to protect themselves against challengers that could come uh, through the caucus system and knock them out without a primary election. 
as that number grows, there will be less and less support for these initiatives. Uh, if that doesn't happen, though, there's another possibility, and that is uh, that, that perhaps advocates for undoing the signature path reform will, uh, will, will win at some point in the next couple of years. But if that happens, there are still clear majorities in the population in Utah who want to participate in primary elections and directly be able to participate in choosing their party's nominee. And at the moment where we see the signature path go away, we'll see a, an initiative come forward uh, and, and we'll see it win, just as the, the Count My Vote uh, uh, program was designed, uh, was, was going to do, had it not been for the SB 54 compromise that stepped in and created this two-track system. I do think we have to be aware of the limited, like the limits that they're placing on that signature gathering, like uh, Tusher's yeah. bill that um, that doesn't allow you to use uh, paid people and they have to wear a tag saying what they're. I just want people. I mean, it sounds good and interesting. I want you to remember though that um, sometimes you put in place what feels like a good and and uh, you know making it more democratic I guess or more, yeah. more accessible and what you really do then is drive people out who don't have money um, so they always you have to have to ask yourself what are the unintended consequences who's actually going to be impacted by this if I want to run for office and I work two jobs and I have a family am I going to have to count on the party to help me hire people mm -hmm. to go out and collect signatures or do I have time to rally those it's an incredibly time-consuming thing to run for office uh, are they taking Taking access to some people, taking access away from some people when they make some of these conditions or make it narrower, harder to collect those signatures. Well, this is such a good point, Heidi, and it's something you brought up just a moment ago as well, because we're seeing efforts on the, the federal level and on the state level impacting how we vote, how we participate, and particularly even to this one that Amy was just talking about, uh, how the initiative referendum process works. And uh, this uh, from our representative Tusher here is exactly right. So this bill, I was just hoping to get to for just a second uh, was brought out because some in our legislature and I think uh, Jerry Stevenson at one point said there are cantankerous individuals from outside the state of Utah that are coming into the state of Utah with a lot of money trying to you know buy signatures from people and impacting state policy seems to be a concern they had which is why this change was passed yeah it's definitely a concern and one that I think takes a lot of understanding and looking at the different options of what's going to happen but I do hope hope that they keep the signature gathering out there. Sometimes the bar seems high, though. That might be one thing that we want to look at. When we're looking at the gubernatorial race and how many signatures they had to get and then how many people were in there and thinking about how many actual voters yeah. were out there and not getting the double signatures, it's certainly something that we have to think about. Outside money is a big issue when we look at these elections, too, you know, because money makes the world go around. It can get you the signatures. So I think it's something we need to look carefully at, and we don't want to have one of those bills signed that ends up getting sent back or repealed because we realize that it it makes even a bigger mess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Damon, tell us how this is going to work um, in practice because, you know, you, th there's a lot of money out there in term when it comes to signatures, particularly yeah. on these initiatives. I mean, I was I was hearing, you know, it's seven plus dollars per signature, something like that. That's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. Well, and, and let's be clear, we're not paying the person signing, the, they're paying the person to collect the signatures. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly, yeah. which, is, which yeah. is what this particular bill is trying to get to. And, you know, for some, we're talking about when it comes to these initiatives, referendums, because that's where this one mm -hmm. specifically went, it becomes less about the policy and more just about the money behind the ability to get the signatures. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that the reform here is very well intentioned. Uh, and 
I, I in, from the signature gathering campaigns that I've had a good vantage point on, uh, most signature gatherers have reported a fairly even and constant number of signatures across the hours that they, they work. Uh, you're comparing evening to evening. So I, I don't think we're going to see a big difference in what the costs of gathering signatures look like. Uh, um, they'll, they'll just scale, scale the hourly wage to make it look like whatever the cost per signature was. Uh, the bigger question is what will a name badge do? Uh, if someone you don't know shows up at your door, will you treat them differently if they have a name badge on that says they're representing some particular group? And, and I think there's a pretty easy way to get around that as well. Uh, you just say, citizens in favor of good government is yeah. the name of the group that you <laughs> represent, and as opposed to people in favor of slaughtering puppies. Yeah. And, uh, and, and suddenly, uh, I don't know that the name badge makes an awful lot of difference uh, when, when people are creative in the way they name their organization. Like I, d I do think the name badge gives people, uh, as a, a woman who answers the door, and, and oftentimes no one else is home. I do have a lot of dogs, so that's a, a helpful. But, but it does give you something to Google. Yeah. You know, you can look something up. I, I'm not opposed to them identifying themselves in a, in a really, uh, you know, yeah. a, out. You know, I, w I want to know who's coming, what they're after. Um, I mean, for me, it's just more a matter of people being able to decide do they want to sign or be a part of something or not. Um, I really think the signature, the paying, the signature gathers is a bigger issue, and I agree it's a well-intentioned uh, bill. Um, I think it might have unintended consequences for groups that, you know, don't have the political power or connection that some of the some of these others have. Or maybe don't knock on my door. Let's stick with one good thing from the pandemic where we let people sign up online and send me a text, and if I want to sign my signature, I will electronically, and otherwise I'll delete your text from me or something. It might be an option to look at. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one more thing before we leave elections. If you have that technology. Yes. If, it's if, true. If, and everyone there's a lot it. of people who don't it's have that true. technology. So. That's true. Yeah. Uh, before we leave the elections, uh, uh, Damon, I just want to get one sense from you because you have some experience with uh, ranked choice voting. Uh, there is a piece of legislation that may impact how often that is utilized, at least in more cities. Uh, Maybe put, put on your hat as the, the mayor of North Logan and talk about that particular provision because that could dramatically impact elections in the state of Utah going forward. Yes, so uh, in uh, municipal elections this coming cycle are required by act of the state legislature to be primarily by mail. And for a lot of communities that don't have optical scanners and experience with printing and mailing ballots, mm -hmm. this is gonna significantly increase the cost of administering elections. So uh, the one advantage of ranked choice voting is that because people say their first choice followed by their second choice, third choice, fourth choice, uh, you only have to hold one election on general election day. And then if your first choice candidate gets eliminated, your vote gets reallocated to your second choice candidate. Uh, so we had two cities, Vineyard and Payson, that did this in the uh, 2019 municipal election cycle. And it was very popular with voters. I think uh, over 75% of voters uh, in those cities said they would like to be able to vote that way again. So with the cost savings, the expanded uh, availability of this mechanism, uh, and some advantages in terms of saving time for voters and decreasing the costs of running an election because you don't have to do a primary and a general for the candidates, uh, I think we'll see a number of cities uh, across Utah 
uh, take a good hard look at ranked choice voting. I know my city, North Logan, is looking carefully at this right now. Uh, and uh, we've got until May 10th for cities to declare their intent as to whether they will or won't use it. Look for a lot more discussion in the public eye about how to do ranked choice voting because the cities that do it are going to be trying to reach out and help people to understand how to use their ballot. I definitely think there would be an education component that would be needed for people to do it. But I think that after we saw the last Salt Lake City mayoral race and also the gubernatorial race, when you saw so many good choices out there and it's so close, I think that brought up the idea of, you know, would this have given more people time to look at the issues and maybe vote that one time and maybe the person who won had a larger majority of that. So I think there's a couple races where people have said, okay, maybe finally here in the state of Utah, it might be a good idea to look at. Yeah. So Amy, it's such an interesting point because you know, the way it's set up right now, you start looking at some of these mm -hmm. primaries, for example, yeah. you have someone moving forward that got you know 30% of the vote, which mm -hmm. you know which might be the same as 70% yeah. of the people voted someone else. But if, if this comes together, you do find some consensus, maybe it's the number two choice, but. Yeah, I also think that it's um, helpful because there are a lot of people who are not aware of when primaries are. Um, you have a lot of people who are unaware that there's an election happening mm -hmm. and uh, you know, as much as we live in this universe, mm -hmm. so we hear it all the time, um, other people, are you know doing their jobs and taking care of their families and they and I think you'd see higher um, engagement if it was a one one shot and and the ranked choice is really popular for a reason and it's really popular with people who are not heavily invested in the political system as it exists mm -hmm. so Heidi I, I want to spend just a no. minute I'll go ahead Damon I was just gonna say you know in in general elections for presidential elections things like that uh, you don't usually see a big return to uh, voting by mail, but something Amy said just made me think of this. The research shows that in municipal elections, voting by mail really does increase participation simply because a ballot showing up in your mailbox is a great way to remind people that there's an election going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's switch gears for just a moment because uh, a lot has been happening when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine. So Heidi, let's take just a second to see what the state of Utah is doing. Go Governor Cox just y yesterday announced that uh, he's going to expand uh, all eligible Utahns by next week on the 24th. Yeah, March 24th, so people can start signing up right now. It's been interesting that they've been ahead of their predictions all the way through. So anyone 16 and older can start getting those vaccines. The question is, are we getting much better at getting these vaccines given out or are there more people who are choosing not to get the vaccine therefore there's more slots open and they want to make sure that those slots are filled it'll be difficult to say till we finally get done with all of the vaccines but i think a lot of people are happy they do have that opportunity to sign up the question is why those dates are kind of moving up so quickly at this point yeah. well, well i i suspect the dates are somewhat moving up because of the april 10th uh deadline <laughs> that yeah. looms right mm -hmm. i think part of the reason that Governor Cox and I haven't talked to him about this, but that he hasn't signed that bill is because it is, um, it feels like a really terrible thing to say we're gonna remove the mask mandate when service workers and, and people who work in gas stations and grocery stores are not able to get the vaccine. I have a daughter who works in that universe, right? And uh, and she actually has a health problem, so she qualified to get it earlier, um, thankfully. But you know they've endured a ton of abuse almost on a daily basis. And a lot of businesses have said the mask mandate, it's not enforced, so it's not like the, that it's, that that's the, the power in it. 
the power in it is it gives them cover so that um, people don't constantly challenge them. But even even with the you know, the statewide mandate, even with you know uh, all this going on, you still have those service workers. Pe these are people who are making minimum wage or around minimum wage uh, who are enduring daily abuse. And so I think some of the moving up, I, I have been trying to help people. I try to help some of my friends who don't have access to technology or the knowledge of how to sign up. And um, the spots are filled. And I had a friend who was at Riverton yesterday with 100 people in line uh, to get their shots. Um, I think there is a real desire to allow people where they can to make appointments because April 10th, this mandate goes away. Like we said, a lot of things are going to stay the same, but I think that friction will increase. And I think people are nervous about, you know, having more confrontations, having yeah. more issues when they don't have the opportunity to get the vaccine. Yeah. And I think the confrontation part is something nobody's looking forward to because I think that once there's no mandate out there, there's probably going to be a lot of pointing fingers between people. Just want us all to be nice. <laughs> we don't want to hate our neighbors. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, and David, I just want to end in, in the last minute that we have here because there are the political side of this as well is we're dealing with the the health side but the politicians are trying to talk about how to get the economy going again and it's interesting as you see angela dunn for example in the state talking about utah specifically she says we need herd immunity is 70 percent but about 30 percent of the state of utah is under 18 which means that this is going to linger for a while so how are elected officials threading this when they're trying to say i want that fourth of july parade or i want to start having these barbecues back by summer yeah, it's a tricky thing. I think uh, a lot of Republicans in the state legislature are looking at their primary electorates and feeling some pressure to get the mask mandates off. Uh, we know that kids, uh, and, and another reason is we know that kids are uh, less susceptible to severe disease, although some of the variants may change that a little bit. Uh, and it's a difficult needle to thread. You know, uh, the governor has taken a lot of heat o over being willing to sign this, but on the flip side, he entered these negotiations with the legislature in good faith, brokered a compromise. And uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people liked about Governor Cox in, uh, the primary, in, in the primary election was that he was very pragmatic. He made a very pragmatic choice here to extend the mandate as long as he could, as opposed to ending it earlier, earlier but making a statement. And we'll, we'll see how uh, folks react to that vote to the governor and to the legislature. Okay, we'll watch this one closely because it certainly impacts us and so much unknown uh, going mm -hmm. into the next couple of months. Thank you for your great insights this evening on some very important topics. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.